Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner, the show in which I treat my guests to a slap-up feed in a top restaurant, and while I refill their glass, I get them to tell me their worldly secrets. In season two, I brought you Jamie Cullum eating Boeuf Bourguignon with one hand and tinkling the ivories with the other. I shared a lassie with Nadia Hussein and a love of food TV with Leanne Le Havis. Things got as rock and roll as they can for a restaurant critic in his 50s when I knocked back the red wine with elbows Guy Garvey and Doctor Who God Russell T. Davis revealed to me his massive Time Lord toy collection. It's been a hoot. And it seems you like us because we have just recorded our millionth listen. After a veritable feast of guests this season, we've reached the point where I ask if you'd like second helpings. Well, of course you would. That's why you're here. So loosen your belt buckles and prepare to enjoy all the best bits we didn't have time for in the original episodes. Now, in their infinite wisdom, my esteemed producers told me there was no need to visit one of London's fine eateries for this episode because they'd cater for all my greedy needs at their offices. So far, I've got an empty table and a bleeding microphone. Hello, sir. Can I offer you some uh, some water? Yeah, all right, whatever. I can highly recommend the Chateau Neuf de Tap, which comes in two distinct temperatures, hot or cold. <sighs> really, just get on with it, please. I've, I've gotten busy here. Absolutely, sir. Don't worry, I'd never talk to a real waiter like that. He's a radio producer from Nottingham. We usually dine in the best of restaurants with terrific company. Guy Garvey, lead singer of the chart-topping and stadium-filling band Elbow, chatted to me at the home of Nose-to-Tail Eating, St John in London's Barbican, which is famous for doing things with the bits of animals that other restaurants leave behind. I even got him to eat lamb's brains. It was all marvellous. And as a rock star, it's only right that we hear a little bit from Guy about the inspiration behind his songs. You were writing songs for a very long while, obviously. Was there a moment when you wrote a lyric when you looked at it and thought, that one? There was a girl who came into my life and for a weekend and disappeared again. And she was a, a junior doctor. I was 17, 18. She was a junior doctor and she was so beautiful. And she decided that my spotty arse was worth a go round. I had the most amazing, passionate two days in my life, and she disappeared. Never We're all grateful for the kindness of women. Exactly, yeah, totally. Um, and the only evidence I had of her existence, apart from my memories, was I'd left my journal on a table in a cafe with her, and she'd signed her name with the words September sometime right, underneath. Okay. 
and we wrote a song called September, September Sometime. Sometime. Yeah, because it was a it was a true story. Because I was writing from my heart, it totally changed the direction of our music. We stopped thinking about writing as being able to do it in a room, and we started thinking about writing as towards a record, and that's still the way we think. Were you ready for fame? Were you ready to be known? Had you been working up to it? When I think about the things I wore uh, before anything happened with Elbow, yeah, I think I was pretty desperate for attention. Well, it's not a bad thing. It is sort of minimum qualifying standard in a pop star. I, I went pretty far left field, though. I had a, a rainbow poncho, all the colours of the rainbow. And at the time, I had all my head was shaved apart from a long fringe. I looked like a twat. <laughs> and uh, nobody staged an intervention. There was a guy called Wayne on the estate who was kind of my long-term <laughs> bully. Uh, and him and he. Well, it's good to know where they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, who's? Oh, it's it's my bully. He'll be so, along shortly to make my life my life hell. <laughs> exactly. So one of his cronies kicked me up the arse when I was walking down the street because of the way I was dressed in this, I think I was in the rainbow poncho. And Wayne stopped his crony and he said, just leave him alone a minute. And then he looked at me with real confusion in his eyes and he went, why are you wearing that? <laughs> and I kind of gained his respect through confusion. I love the pictures Guy paints in his lyrics as well as his speech. You know, I too was quite a natty dresser in my day. I had this pair of turquoise dungarees that I knew were really the thing. I wore them for two or three summers. Anyway, we've had openness and honesty by the bucketful here on Out to Lunch, and perhaps the guest who best epitomises that is MP for Birmingham Yardley, Jess Phillips. In the face of political chaos and appalling threats to her life on a regular basis, Jess remained stoic, candid and very funny. I took Jess to the ninth in Fitzrovia, so-called because it's the ninth restaurant in which Jun Tanaka, the chef, has worked. He does a roving menu of small plates of really good food and as Jess had not really given us any dietary requirements at all, I just thought I'd take her to a nice place to eat. And here we chat about underage drinking. I remember sitting around the pub, where, which I was not old enough to be in. That's a thing that doesn't happen I now, know. isn't it? I know. I was thinking about this. So my, I've got a 20-year-old son, so he's gone through the period from drinking in the park yeah. and now we can go to pubs. I was thinking, on my 18th birthday, I, I had my 18th birthday in a pub in Hampstead and I'd been drinking there for two yeah, years of course, before. That, that was like the norm that you would do underage drinking in the pub when we were kids. Yeah. And now, I can't, I mean... My son on his 13th birthday, like, he wanted to go to the Lego shop and I genuinely went to an illegal rave on my 13th <laughs> birthday. So I'm a bit like, dude, it's like um, absolutely fabulous. I'm like, go out, enjoy yourself. Jess Phillips there on the excesses of youth. Hey, we've all been there. But why keep excesses for the young, I say? Now to a visit to Tayabs, which is a legendary Pakistani grill house in Whitechapel. It's been there for about four or five decades, and what they don't know about cooking lamb chops in a tandoor oven is not worth knowing about. It was the perfect spot to take Nadia Hussein, bake-off winner, author, broadcaster, heck, I'd even say national treasure. There she revealed how she went to extraordinary lengths to actually avoid taking part in the show that propelled her to stardom. The extraordinary thing, when you describe it like that, to me, is why you didn't run for the hills. 
You almost did, didn't you? I, well, I called. When I made it to the final 12, mm. I said to my husband, please, will you ring them and tell them that I can't do it? And then I said, well... And he said, look, I'm not going to do it. If you want to ring them and can't... He goes, this is an opportunity for you to do something that you absolutely love. And you can ring them. If you want to cancel it, I'm not ringing them for you. You ring them yourself. And I begged him. I literally created an elaborate plan of how he could tell them that I died. <sighs> I said, they're not going to look for me. They're not going to go searching for the body. Exactly. Just tell them I died. And he said, what is wrong with you? I want to see the look on his face. He said, how am I going to ring them and tell them you died? I said, just, have to. Yeah. He said, I said, just tell them. They're not going to look for a death certificate or anything. Just say you buried me quick. Just, just, like, tell them I'm... It's part of our tradition. Yeah. We get the body yeah, in the ground yeah. as quickly as we yeah, possibly can. Yeah, before it even cools down. Get her in the ground. <laughs> I said, do it, do it. Just tell them. And he said, you're being really ridiculous. I was really frantic at this point. Then I said, right, I'm going to the doctors and I'm going to tell them I need a sick note to get out of Bake Off. <laughs> and then I said, and then, <laughs> I did, I really did. I went to the doctors and I said, so can you keep a secret? And he said, everything's a secret. I said, so I've just made it onto Bake Off and I really don't want to do it. Could you please give me a sick note? And he goes, congratulations, well done. I can't wait to watch you. I was like, oh, for God's sake. Nobody I, will help me. Oh, Bake Off fan, what have I done? Couldn't get out of it. So I called them three times and hung up on them three times. And the, the production manager answered all three times. And I, I, every time she said hello, I quickly hung up. And I did that three times, sat at the end of my bed with my husband on the other side. And he said, you know, why you keep hanging up? And I said, why? He it. goes, because you want to do it. Why don't you just accept it? And I said, I said, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. I mean, it has to be said, one of the, the other great things about that show is, because I know Sue Perkins pretty yes. well, and I know Mel a little bit, their role went beyond being presenters. They actually yeah. did quite a lot of pastoral care for the competitors oh, yeah. all the way through, didn't they? Yeah, because what you don't see is the judges are kept away from the from mm. the contestants, and so they are very unbiased. They have to just come in for the bakes. Um, and not become your friend. And not become your friend. And having worked in television, I can see now why they did that. It's partly because they had to be unbiased, and also because it's cold in that tent. Sometimes you need to go warm up with a cup mm. of tea somewhere else. I get that. But Mel and Sue went above and beyond. Um, in you know they'd go off, but when they did come back, if there was a moment where they could see that you're just struggling just a little bit, of course there were moments when you were struggling, and they would have to come in, swoop in with a camera to get your reaction to see you fall apart a little bit. You could see it in their face. There was a kind of sense of oh, this isn't the right time to go in. Somebody's having a meltdown, you know? So you could see that kind of human side to them, which is something that was really lovely because there were moments where I really struggled or I was quite tearful or other people were quite tearful. And they would just go in and say, no cameras, just, can we just... And, and, and Mel and Sue would hold the cameras off you? Yeah, they would just say, no, just give her a second. Just let's just, let's just... And they would come in and give you hugs and make sure you're okay. And then the cameras would come back. But they, they were such... That's why everyone always asks me, what does it feel like to watch Bake Off? But now, for me, the bake-off that I was in, it was Mel and Sue. Mel, Sue, Mary and Paul. And for me, now when I watch bake-off, it's, it's still bake-off, but it's a very different bake-off to the one I was in. Good old Mel and Sue. And I had a truly terrific time with Nadia and ate an awful lot of lamb chops. My next guest, Ashling B, used to making shows with Hollywood stars for Netflix and writing, producing and starring in her own TV series, actually spends her downtime watching MasterChef, in which I am occasionally a judge. It's a difficult job, but somebody's got to do it. She's such a fan, she ended up asking me a load of questions. 
You could do the Master Chef voiceover. I would love to do the Master Chef voiceover. Oh my god. I have so many questions for you. Can I ask you a few of them? If you wouldn't mind. Here's the thing I don't understand. Everything's a time pressure. Time pressure, time pressure, time pressure. Then everyone finishes at the same time. But certain things are dependent on it only have having cooked for like three minutes or then being given time to rest. But then everyone clearly takes about five, ten minutes to bring up their dish and give it to you. Do you eat the food cold? Do they re-microwave it? What if it's an ice cream? Do they keep it in the freezer? You have questions, I don't still, you? I genuinely have, have these so questions about MasterChef. All right, so there are two separate things that I've done on that show. Yes, you've been the, the critic the and you've table. also been so, the yeah, guy in, at the in, top in, of the... Ta- in, yeah. in the main room with yeah. Greg and John. Yeah, yeah. So when it's the critic's table, mm-hmm. that is a staggered start. Everything arrives. Yes, yes, um, yes. You know, normal, straight, whole, like normal, restaurant. normal stuff. Can I ask you a question about that as well then? Do you always eat all of your dinner or are you stuffed like how much time do you have between each three all right so you uh, don't do breakfast yeah if you can you go to the gym to work up an appetite oh really um and you don't plan on dinner either okay and then we taste and then we always make sure this is a knife and fork yeah we always make sure there is a shot of the knife and fork going down on the plate um we may have cleared some stuff to the side because the grammar of they've eaten something now it's an empty plate that yes so do they really take food off the plate to make it look like you've eaten it no, no they because, just yeah. I mean uh, you know I could pretend that we're, we've all got bird like appetites but yeah 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 see me you're a hunk of a man we eat uh, I mean we don't eat all of it unless yeah. it's really good in which case we do yeah okay and we're always being watched by the production team who like their food and yes. they want to taste it the moment we're finished with it Really? And, there, and there's a moment when it's really good and we start scooping away and then you look up at them. Oh, and they're and you sad. smile and just kind of put the, the spoon around the bowl and, well, that was lovely, and put oh, it down. Oh, and they and don't they get FOMO. And then, um, yeah, fear of missing out, absolutely. Yeah. And then the one in the main room mm-hmm. is, no, it's cold. It's cold. Yes. Oh, my God. So when he's like, oh, I love it. I can't get enough of it. But it is cold. But they never That's do that. That's a good Greg Wallace impression. Thank you very much. Oh, that bass. That biscuity bass. One of my favourite songs to date has been a remix of uh, Greg Wallace. Saying buttery with biscuit buttery bass. biscuit bass. And it's Because gen- I grew up with dance music in Ireland. And I love that song. It's like, we like bass, bass, bass. I like buttery biscuit bass, bass. And it's just, it's a great. Whoever did that won the internet that day. Of course, Ashling had to order the chocolate fondant for dessert, the downfall of many a MasterChef contestant. Oh, my God. OK, I'm going to do my MasterChef voice now. And that actually is beautiful. Jay has received a pumpkin tart served with a quenelle. Quenelle. Quenelle, thank you. A quenelle of ice cream. Ashling has received the fondant. She looks nervously at it. Do you know what I really love? Go on. Is if you get the audio transcribed MasterChef, you don't just get the lady who does the voiceover. You get extra voiceover, but from like a quite a robotic voice. So it'll go, the fondant arrives. And then it'll have this robotic voice going, Ashling looks down at fondant, makes sad face. <laughs> and it's really entertaining. And I didn't realise I was watching something with that for quite a while, but it's very entertaining. Move over India Fisher, the real voice of MasterChef. You've got competition in the wings. So sorry to interrupt, so I'm just going to clean up around you because it seems that none of it went in your mouth. What do you mean, you cheeky git? You haven't fed me anything. Let me just, if I may... 
screenwriter extraordinaire Russell T. Davis, the man behind the Doctor Who reboot in 2005, was warm, entertaining and totally outrageous, my perfect guest. I took him to Café Murano in Covent Garden, which is run and owned by the great Angela Hartnett, originally one of Gordon Ramsay's chefs, but a brilliant chef in her own right with great Italian heritage, and that's what she put on the plate. And in this next clip, I tell him about some of my early sci-fi loves, and of course, where there's Russell... There's a brilliant anecdote. Did you watch Space 1999? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, anything? Oh, I kind of loved that. I thought um, it had its problems. Blake Seven. (laughs) Mm. Why has nobody remade Blake Seven? Because those scripts were fantastic. I think they never remade it, probably because it's slightly rubbish. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) Sorry, Jay. Should we just cancel the rest of our courses? I I know. I mean, it's not just that I fancied Serverland. No, no. Of course, obviously, I work with her. Oh my goodness! Did I went with her on a children's show called Dark she, Season. What was her name? Um, she's just Jacqueline Pierce. She's just passed away. Just passed away. Yeah, wonderful woman. And this kid show had Kate Winslet in as a fifteen-year-old girl. And um, did you make a watch Jackie Pierce in World Jackie Pierce with a CBBC show, a children's drama with a children's cast, a children's director, and the in walks Jackie on her first day into the North Acton rehearsal rooms on her first day. She says, darling, I'm sorry I'm late. I was fucking a Russian priest all night. <laughs> <laughs> and that set the tone from that point on. She was gorgeous. Can I, for the record, say lucky Russian priest? Lucky <laughs> Russian? Oh, my, I bet he didn't stay. Dog collars belong. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, our fact-checkers aren't able to tell us whether this story is entirely accurate, but one thing we do know is that Russell T. Davis is never one to shy away from a colourful story. Russell actually created a role for my next guest as the newscaster in his recent TV drama Years and Years, its presenter and X-Factor King Dermot O'Leary. I took Dermot to the oldest restaurant in London, which is Rules, a venue he chose, but it's a firm favourite of mine too. I first ate there when I was 10 years old with my late mother. She introduced me to oysters in Rules. It's a fantastic place with lots and lots of history, but brilliant food. Here, Dermot talks about his days travelling and at university which were not exactly what you'd expect from a famous TV presenter. I remember my mum and dad dropped me off. I went travelling on my own during the summer. Um, a lot of my mates are stoners, and I don't smoke. I don't do any drugs. I just like to drink. So I, and I had quite a strong work ethic, so I'd go and work to save, to go away at the end of the summer. And then all my mates would spend all their money on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be like... Got the cash, guys. Let's go. And then, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of took a lot. So I end up travelling. I interrailing with a guy I barely knew called Glenn Rayner. And then I went around France and Spain on my own on the train. And when I graduated, I went around America on my own by a train on the train. You, well, th- that immediately suggests something because I did travelling by myself when I was that age. You liked your own company, but I'm a really social animal. So, well, isn't that part of it? Because you're then were you really good at striking up conversations with strangers yeah. and meeting people? Yeah, I love the company of people. And one, one of the reasons why I do, well, the main reason I do what I do for a living is because I like people. I like meeting people, curious about people. But, I'm, but I probably need that recharge of my own company as well, which I, I quite like. Um, so but to go back to Middlesex, I went there and suddenly, um, my mum and dad dropped me off and I couldn't, I couldn't get into halls. And so I lived with, I sort of lived this odd 1970s sitcom life. I lived with a landlady for the first time. <laughs> But if it was a 1970s sitcom, did she? Did she try? No, she had a, she had a gentleman caller across the road. <laughs> oh, did she? Yeah, 
called Ron, I think his name was. Of course he was called so Ron. I had this weird thing where I'm at university and it's, got, it's my first term and I sort of, yeah, I want to go and meet. A, I was sort of heartbroken because I, I'd sort of, me and this girl, we almost got oh. together and then that just, and I always carry these things for a long time. So Are you first. over it yet or not quite? Yes, <laughs> but it ruined the first year of university for me. And, and she'd be like, well, I served dinner at, it was like a proper old school, I served dinner at six, my dear, so we need you back for that. So I would have to run back from the student union to have essentially a Frey Bentos meat pie with her and vegetables <laughs> and then a muller rice. And then I'd walk her dog. It was in the middle of Tottenham. So I'd just take the dog for a walk. So I had this really odd kind of rising damp style first term at university. It was so weird, but I met all of these really interesting people because so many mature students go to Middlesex. So I suddenly met people of different ethnicity and I've always been fascinated by London since I was five. We, 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 you know, we came up every second weekend and we spent it with the London Irish community. My auntie had a place. Up in Kilburn. Exactly, at Queen's Park, Kilburn. And go and watch my dad play hurling or be in, in the pubs up there or, you know, crisps and coke on the stool kind of thing. And, it's, and so London's always felt like a home to me. But I'd meet these people who... I remember going back at the end of my first term and it was like my friends would, would come back and I'd go, yeah, I'm in the rugby club and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I'd be like, oh, I met this great single mum and, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I've, I've met lesbians and gay guys and, I've, you know, I've just, I've immersed myself and I'm, one of my best friends is like 35 and he's run away from Liverpool because he want to get married. And I'm, so I'm meeting all these different people and my, my brain's exploding and I'm loving it. What a brilliant way to develop your people skills. Perfect for a reality TV host. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Now, sitting down to three courses with my guests means we have the gift of time and can get into all sorts of subjects properly in depth. Here's Jess Phillips, MP, again at the ninth in Fitzrovia, being nothing but frank, as is her way. This time, she talks about her brother's addiction and the criticism she's faced addressing it. You've talked quite publicly about your, your brother and his addictions mm-hmm. and described that once as you felt a sense of failure at not being able to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he's in recovery at the moment, he isn't he? He is in recovery. Is talking about it part of his recovery? Uh, yeah, he's talking that, about it all the time. But I mean, if you're, <laughs> no, what I mean is, if you talking about it, having it publicly oh, there, right, are yeah. you building up the, um, the more to lose by falling I off? What, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, potentially, that's true. Um, people often criticise me for talking about it because they're like, oh, you shouldn't, you should... I was kind of interested in that. Yeah, yeah, no, people do that all the time. So I always just copy him in on Twitter and say, well, I'll just ask him, uh, oh, what does your brother think about you talking about it? I'm like, and, well, and what, what are you he asking? Reply? He, his reply is that he's not ashamed and that talking about it is really important um, and you can't pretend otherwise. We can't pretend otherwise that it didn't happen. And I think his, what I don't talk about is his experience of it. I right. talk about my experience of it. 
My brother's drug addiction and anybody who uh, lives with a drug addict, I don't owe him anonymity, in fact, because he he owes himself and the other people around him anonymity. But it was such a massive effect on my life. That put I'm, you through hell. Yeah, I'm allowed to talk about my own experiences. Part of the silencing that happens in things like that is that everybody feels like nobody should talk about it. And my brother certainly doesn't mind me talking about it. The first time I ever wrote about it, I think... I sent uh, I sent him the uh, article first, and he was like, "Yeah, whatever. It's absolutely fine. It's your experience. Say what you like." Um, but and a couple of editors, when I've written about it in newspapers, have asked if they can see his approval. Uh, that's which extremely well mannered. I know. That's like making the last call. The, do you remember the culture of the last call? Oh, yeah, Where yeah. you're trying to stand the story up, but you never want to make the call just in case the whole fucking thing the comes rolling down. Yeah, exactly. So, and, um, and so he just, he always just like, yep, no props from me, sort of thing. So, uh, no, my brother's fine about me talking. But it's a huge part of his story. And he goes around talking to people about it, uh, policymakers and stuff, to try and help change drugs policy or improve recovery policies. It's so refreshing hearing someone stand their ground. And as Jess mentioned, these conversations roll on and on through Twitter. I speak to a lot of my guests about social media because it's such a huge part of being famous now. The wonderful actor Eddie Marsan, star of Mike Lee's film Happy Go Lucky and the US crime drama Ray Donovan, had much to say on the subject. Over a table at the Oyster and Seafood Bar Bentley's off Piccadilly, he talked extensively about the nature of his arguments, conducted within 280 characters. Have you ever thought, quite seriously, because there's certainly been opportunities recently, of taking these views and actually going into the political realm? No, I... <laughs> have you been fronted up about it? I've been talked to... Somebody once said that to me. A few people have said it to me. Um, no, I... I, I I don't think, I think my way of doing it will be to make films and to make stories and to choose films. There's certain, I, get to, I get to choose films now. I get asked to do things and I can do things that I want to do. That, that I, I think that's the way I, I can do it, you know. I've also came off, I came off Twitter. One of the reasons I tempered my Twitter because I was spending, I was spending more time arguing with anti-Semites than I was doing my kids' homework. That's, that's the thing, you know. You start off thinking, well, you can't say that, you? you know, and you think it's great, I'm arguing with this guy, and you, you only, and then you, it's so, the argument itself is so addictive, isn't it? Indeed, it's I've very watched addictive. one close, close friend of mine, I think, has gone too deep in. Yeah. It can be completely compulsive, it can't can it? It can be. And you can lose, almost start to lose sense of self. You can, and, and also it's a very inarticulate way of dealing with it as well. Eddie Marsan there. Part of being famous for Nadia Hussein is realising how ephemeral fame can sometimes be. Although very successful, she's just published her 11th book. She's got her feet firmly on the ground. So I did a childhood and youth studies degree. It took a long time. And the plan was to become a social worker um, or potentially go into teaching because I thought, well, actually, practically, it's more practical to go into teaching because... I can take time off when the kids are off, I don't have to pay for childcare, to think about all of those things. And it just didn't work out. So if all of this fails, I've always got a backup plan. That's it? That's it. thing is, I kind of believe you. As in, I think you genuinely think that, don't you? Um, do I believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could go... It's, could... it's in your back pocket, isn't it? Yeah, I have to have something in my back pocket because... The speed in which all of this happened, I was never ready for. I always say that to my husband, and he always says, "I'm being, he says, you're being stupid now. Just, 
And I always say I'm really lucky. I always say I'm lucky for the opportunities. And, and I am lucky for them. But he always corrects me. He's the first to correct me. And he always says, you know, you're not lucky. You're actually good at what you do. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> he always says that. And I'm like, oh, be quiet. And I just kind of shut him down really quickly. And he goes, you know, you're actually really good at what you do. And, he, and, and, and I, I don't always believe him. Nadia Hussein. I'm sure we won't lose her to social work anytime soon. David Baddiel was pragmatic about his career, having found fame early on with stand-up comedy, a football TV show and a very, very famous football song. He then became an author of both adult and then children's books. Over Michelin-starred Indian food at the Tamarind in Mayfair, he said he didn't want to eat posh Indian, but I overruled him, he charted the changing nature of the way people see him. Having your, your working life being around the thing that you would always love personally, was that problematic no, or brilliant. was that just brilliant? It's brilliant for a long time and then after a while. I don't like particularly, I think one of the things about, the thing I said earlier on about fame means that the more famous you are, the more people will get you wrong, is that one of the things that does happen, which is totally fair enough, because we're not designed to know the amount of people that we know. You know, we know hundreds and hundreds yeah. of people now, but we're not designed to know them. And the way that we know all these people who we don't actually know is by they do one thing, and that's what they get marked as. In the death of Eli Gold, at one point someone says fame is like starlight, by which they don't mean it's transcendent or glittering. They mean it comes from long ago. The first things you did will often mark you out in people's minds as that's who you are because they don't really want to know about you being a complicated three-dimensional person who changes. So I still love football, right. but I did not want, and neither did Frank, to carry on doing a football comedy show for the rest of my life. Is it not fair to say that your whole career has actually given the lie to that starlight from long ago? Because no, you've because had people three or four careers. I have, but nonetheless. And what it means is the starlight's been refracted in my case. So there are some people who just... You're going to really, take this fucking metaphor and well, you're going to well, run with it as Well, it's as certainly true that people still shout at me. That's you, that is. People still shout at me, you know, is it coming home? You know, the biggest points of my career are still the things that people totally define me. You know, and, and you know... If Apart I, from the kids who pick up all those books in well, hundreds of thousands of millions. Yeah, well, and that is one of the things I like most about that, is that idea that you can be defined differently from, you know, the way that you've always been defined with kids is a brilliant thing. David Baddiel in reflective mode there, and it does have to be said, we have quite a bit in common. We're both North London Jewish men in our 50s, and um, we actually went to the same school. Uh, he was a year above me, though, as I need to point out, he's at least a couple of years older than me. And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. I loved speaking to Cathy Burke in the remarkable new Platinum Arowana Room at Scott's, uh, which is an absurd confection of agate flooring and some true masterpieces. There are works by Chagall and Pissarro in that room. There is so much art, uh, you don't know whether to, you know, eat the food or stare at the walls. Cathy's won the Best Actress at Cannes and directed The Good and the Great in the Theatre. But what I wanted to know more about, as with all my guests, was her stance on food and drink. Here she reveals her secret 
to the best salad dressing. Do you cook, by the way? Mm. Are you any good? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm, I'm very good at simple. I don't overdo things. And once, when we were doing Lady Windermere's Farm, I had a big gang of people come to a matinee. And when they all came back to mine, because I've got a great local pizzeria who are brilliant and their pizzas are great and they're on a wholemeal base and they're just so juicy. And I said, look, I'll order a couple of pizzas, a couple of big pizzas, one veggie, one meat, and I'll make the salad. And I did two Hugh Bolts of salad and everyone was crazy about the dressing. What's this salad dressing? Oh, my God, this is the best salad dressing I've ever had. Tell me, Kathy Burke's salad dressing, what is Salt, it? Salt, pepper, lemon juice. That was it. And it's because everybody drowns their salads with all this crap that they thought this was the, one of the nicest because they could taste the fucking leaves. <laughs> it was like, no, that's what salad tastes like. I hate sauces and dressings. And, and Don't even get you started on gravy. Don't get me started on gravy. <laughs> Although veggie gravy is great if it's with a good... If you can find a good veggie, veggie sort of roast dinner place that mm-hmm. do a good veggie gravy, that's fantastic. Mm. Oh, that was delicious. It was good, wasn't it? So have we finished? So that, does that mean I can have my cup of tea with the fag outside? Yes, good thinking, Cathy. We've reached that time for my after-dinner coffee. Speaking of which, oi, waiter, any danger of a double espresso round here? Absolutely, Ray Jana. Two scoops of Maxwell House coming right up. Thank you very, very much. For those of you who love outtakes, here's how a bit of sneezing from our sound engineer prompted a conversation into a wholly different arena. Just a warning, it involves mouse noises and smut. Hang on one second. You all right? Sorry. Right. <laughs> oh, he had, oh sneeze, he had a silent sneezing fit. Oh, no, in the you brought of a thing. Yeah. Get in there, That's son. Terrible. It's well, not. That it's is. Not, it's not. I just had a claim. It's like you know, you're I, a human man, don't you? You're not a robot. Yeah, yeah. And now you've just proved it. I, I have a thing. It tends to happen in the mornings. Doesn't always happen. But mm. if I sneeze once, I'm then going to sneeze 18 times. Oh, really? You know, I have sneezing fits. They go on for about 18 to 20. Have you ever gotten it checked out? So you do well actually isn't a sneeze supposed to be like one tenth of an orgasm? orgasm. So you're having a whole one plus half. Yeah. God Jay. Oh to be you. (laughs) All that over. Watch over me eggs. That's a disgusting image. My mother when she sneezes has always gone, achoo! And she like did a really big one. Oh, a really just loud sound. And I don't know if it's like a Pavlov dog thing where now where she sneezes, she makes the noise mm. or whether it is, but it's always been one of her great features. And there was a girl in my philosophy class at university and everyone was very serious and very like, oh, what's Emmanuel Kant talking about today? And she just sneezed like this. And it just <laughs> honestly... No one wanted to acknowledge it, and she was really serious, but I'm like, oh, my God, it's just a little mouse house sound. Just really made me laugh the whole time, and I'd be gone. I, once I start laughing, I'm Do I'm you gone think there the... could be a correlation between the noise people make when they sneeze <gasps> and when... They orgasm? Yeah. Oh, my God. That, I, do, I mean this in the nicest way, but I would love to hear her in bed now. <laughs> so you really are... You're coming into this... Amanda's arrived. Poor, Amanda's arrived with just a, like, oh, my God. <laughs> But the man just like, oh, 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 just there. Yes. Oh, thank you. Oh, 
Oh, it's the thank you. Yeah, thank it's, you. Uh, it's thank excuse you. me. Excuse me. Oh, excuse me. And then someone else is going to say, God bless you. <laughs> Every time she comes. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, I hope you feel full to brimming with those final morsels of season two of Out to Lunch. A huge thank you to all my guests for taking the time to chew the fat with me, literally in many cases. I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear that we're already making a season three. More news on that in 2020. Subscribe now and you'll find it in your feeds when the time comes. Until then, do have a listen to past episodes from both seasons one and two. And please share, rate and review to help others find us and inflate my ego. I do love a five star review. It just makes me feel so much better about myself. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. Lawrence Bassett starred in this episode as the world's worst waiter. The assistant producers are Jemima Rathbone and Rosie Marotra. The sound and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The producer is Selena Ream, while the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Thank you so much for letting me take you all out to lunch. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.